Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies, where we'll be discussing Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda's Monstrous. I apologize to either of you if I just completely butchered your name, but we're here. This comic was a lot. I finished it today, actually, as we're recording. We're recording at like 9 o'clock at night, and I finished the second volume today. So you get my fresh hot takes and my emotional scarring. It's been a lot. Yeah, this girl's reading Reaper Man by Terry Pratchett at the same time that she is reading these comics for the first time, so... So I'm having, like, a double existential crisis right now. Yeah, I was concerned for you while I was on my lunch today answering your text messages and being like, Rachel, you good? You good? (laughs) The answer is no. No, I'm not good. I may never be good again, but you know what? It'll be okay. (laughs) It's just a lot. I've been thinking a lot about, like, personhood and who gets to decide who's a person. And, like, this comic did not help me with that internal discussion that I've been having. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. No. But. No. It does continue the recently born remedial studies tradition of loving loving our monster children yes yes i would agree with that shall i try i i know that last episode i did not do a good job with a brief summary but shall i try to brief summary monstrous for our dear listeners sure and um as always we have this blanket disclaimer whenever we do an episode about something we're gonna spoil pretty much everything up until issue 12 we are going to be discussing issues 1 through 12, which uh, consist of the first two volumes that have been published. The third volume is going to be out this fall. I don't remember what it's going to go up to, but I think it's 13 to 19. I think. I think that's a thing. I hope I didn't make it up in my head. Hannah, would you like to, as we always try to, attempt to give a brief summary? Yeah, I'm going to keep it real bare bones, uh, because if you haven't read this comic... Stop this podcast immediately and go do that because it's totes, totes worth it. But the comic is about this uh, girl, 17-year-old girl named uh, Meka Half-Wolf. And we find out pretty early on that Meka is uh, possessed, essentially, by a infernal demon tentacle monster and it turns out it might be a god it's all very eldritch tests inconclusive uh anyway so she exists in this world where there is a race of creatures called ancients ancient ones and they are like animal people that's the thing about that is like they're kind of shown as like having relations with humans and I'm like so like wouldn't be about that that I'm like okay but regardless there's the race the ancients which are all animal from what we can tell they're humanoid but they're animal yeah humanoid like wolf people I mean they're pretty uh, don't get me wrong uh and then there's humans and then there's cats which are an intelligent race uh, in this book and their two jobs that cats can have as far as I can tell is, is poet historian or necromancer those are the only two things you could be if you're a cat that's not true but I think it's funny 
and then the at first the humans and the ancients weren't couldn't interbreed but then of course one day accidents happen they interbreed and they form the fourth race which is arcanics they have magical properties but they're not immortal like the ancients that's why they that's why the ancients and basically a war breaks out because one of the humans figured out that the bones and flesh of the uh, ancient ones and to a lesser extent but still pretty significant like juice and extent the arcanics they have this stuff in them called ilium which is essentially like magic juice and you can use it to do cool stuff like live longer or power your weird science experiments yeah it reminded me a lot of how they use the person energy in jupiter ascending actually Yes, that is very true. Oh, we're going to go down that rabbit hole again. I'm excited. Anyway, there's a, and I think worth mentioning too, is there's an order of witch nuns. <laughs> which and that is what they're called. We're not making that up. Yeah. That is what they are called is witch nuns. I love it. It's the Cumaean order. And one of their founders patron saints goddesses it's all very murky in the way that that sort of thing can be sometimes uh basically was the one who discovered that the this magic juice is in these other races and human women in this universe can be kind of um psychic and have like those kind of mind-based powers but they're not magic so the, the Cumaean witch nuns kind of are the ruling power in a lot of the world that we're in over the human side. Uh, and it's kind of this theocracy, but they're also science witch nuns. It's, it's very cool. There's this conflict between the Arcanics and the Ancient Ones on one side and the humans on the other side. And I think it's worth mentioning, because I haven't mentioned this yet, that we're in like an art deco Asia, and it's steampunk and real cool. Go look at one of the covers, like, this instant to, like, because I can't put words to the intricacy and the beauty of this artwork, and it's just real good. It's real good, guys. Yeah, I might post a couple of the covers on our Twitter, just because y'all need to fucking know. Um, I remember... My immediate response to this, because I was talking to Matt Ligetti on our Twitter, as we often do, because Matt Ligetti is one of our only friends of the show at the moment, and he was talking about how he even he had read it, and I was like, well, I'm reading it for the first time, and my immediate reaction is just, like, shit's lit. And that's, like, the biggest endorsement I can give it. It's dope. It's lit. It's great. Looking at the backgrounds of all the cities will make your hands hurt, because you're like, how did you draw all that detail? Why did you do that? You didn't have to, but you did that for us. Anyway, it turns out that Mega is, like, descended from the very first Arcanic, who's, like, ultra-mega-powerful and wicked cool, the Shaman Empress, which is, like, the best name. <laughs> yeah, if I want a job title, like, that's it. Yeah, please. I want to be a Shaman em- a shaman Empress. I also, we'll talk about this later, but it, it's... It's in the art style. The, it's uh, she does bear a very strong resemblance to Micah. 
Mm-hmm. I, 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 I say Micah, I think you say Micah, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. That's fine. We can accept multiple interpretations on the show. <laughs> we can, uh, because we've never we've never heard either either the author or the artist say the name aloud, so we're just going off what we're going off. Um but uh I I yeah, so Micah is descended from the Shaman Empress and she has apparently inherited um a a small parasite a ghost of well he's not a ghost this is brought up no one really knows what version of this old god he is but he is an old god mm-hmm. and he hungers and he often will uh, enact he will often sate that hunger by taking over slash working with Mika to feed off the life essence of people around her. Yes. He, um, it varies. Like, we've seen Mika literally, like, rip animals and people apart and, like, get herself covered in blood. Also, quick trigger warning for gore and body horror. <laughs> oh my, there's, there's a lot of body horror. Like, there was a part... It involves a woman taking a mask off, and you see uh, her face is not what you thought it was, and it literally, like, I'm usually pretty good with that kind of stuff. Like, I'm I'm usually pretty okay with body horror. That shit got me so bad, I had to, like, take a break from the comic. <laughs> yeah, I have, I, I don't do well with that stuff at all, um, and yeah, those, it was pretty horrifying. So just keep that in mind when you read, guys take care of yourselves take care of yourselves like it's great but it's not like worth triggering yourself great is anything that's a discussion for another day um to get back on track so the whole story and you can correct me if you have a different interpretation on this hannah but i think the whole story is kind of about make a running to something running from something or looking for answers to something and kind of dealing with the situation that she's been put in where she has this old god that lives inside her. She's got Kippa, who's a half-wolf that has imprinted upon her fox. mother chicken-like. She's a fox. She's a fox. Thank you. Um, and Master Wren, who is a necromancer, who's a cat with two tails. The cats, they're cool. <laughs> they're really super cool. They freak me out. I don't know why. Maybe it's the fact that the only two jobs you have are poet and raising dead children. Yeah. Maybe that's it. But it's it it all takes place in this the world building I think is one of the stars of the show. Oh yeah, for sure. Cuz like I I just want to when I give you the summary, I just want to keep telling you all this stuff that would be much better served by reading the actual comic. And I hope you have I, I think, like, at the end of the day, what the plot is really about is Mika is stuck kind of in between these sides of the war. She doesn't really care, I don't think, about what happens in the war, except that the the first, you know, the first half of the war, the, the, they're kind of in a lull. They're in a, a treaty-type period right now because... At the last battle of the conflict, something on the Arcanic side killed 
a bajillion people, like a lot of people died because of whatever it was. And the humans got scared and didn't want to deal with that kind of power anymore and backed off. And it turns out that that was probably Mika and the demon inside her because she was at the site of the war, of, of that battle. And everyone, no one really knows what it was, but it, it, it was her. And it puts a stop to this conflict. But her search for answers about herself and, and because she was in a slave camp during the war and was hungry all the time and, and mistreated and, and who knows what else, she's real damaged. She's real messed up. She's really messed up. And I, and I think we talked about this briefly in the production meeting. I think that's one of the reasons I liked the 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 comic in general. I liked it because Meika was the kind of female protagonist whose numero uno character trait was not likable. Cuz she's not really likable. You you understand once you get more of her backstory especially, you understand why she does the things she does. You understand why she acts the way that she does. But she's not likable. And at the end of the day, that's not really the most important thing about her. And she certainly doesn't give a shit. No, I think that's one of the things that I like about her, too, is that she's definitely an anti-hero. She is killing people and she's not sorry about it. And she doesn't have any real moral qualms about it. She is generally callous and unfeeling and unsympathetic towards other characters. She's can be cruel just to be cruel. And she manipulates other people and isn't afraid to throw around the fact that she's a highly trained fighter. And she's also not afraid to stick the demon on you either if she has to part of the enjoyment of the comic is seeing we're starting to see especially in volume two this is changing a little bit she's growing as a person a little bit um and becoming slightly less like that but in in it's refreshing to me to see a story about a girl who is in this weird conflict there's gonna be there's going to be problems, and she has the ability to stop it. Like, she has the big major power. And she's not actively trying to stop it. It's not, the story is not about her trying to stop the war and fix the world and bring the two halves of the world back together and defeat the great evil. She doesn't care about that. What she cares about is herself and, and trying to heal herself after the things that she's been through and surviving and not being used or killed or taken in by somebody else. Like, she doesn't care about anybody else. And I think it's nice to see that in a, in a female character because, like, that's not typically how this goes. Yeah, I, I think there is an expectation. We're getting better about this in the year of our Lord 2018. But I, th I think there is still a little bit of that narrative expectation for female characters to just naturally be more empathetic and more nurturing. 
which Micah is not, and her mother isn't really, and a lot of the female characters in this book aren't, which I find refreshing. It, it's the kind of book that lets all characters just be evil, which is not stuff that you kind of see every day, unfortunately, because I we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum on this show. Sometimes a character can just be evil, and you don't need to have a whole redemption arc if, if it's not going to fit the character. Um, I think if there ever is going to be, she doesn't even really need a redemption arc in the traditional sense, I don't think. But there is sort of that instigator in the moral compass of the show, of the book, of the comic. <laughs> and also our moral compass. <laughs> and our moral compass, who I have adopted in my real life. Uh, Kippa, the half fox girl, who is, she's real young too, isn't she? She's like, what, 10? I think she's yeah. I think she's younger than that. I, I would pin her at like seven. Question yeah, mark? that's that sounds right. She sounds like early ele- elementary school age, but she's very young and she has that. She has a very clear cut view of the world, and you should be nice, yes. and you should not be rude, and you should apologize to people you've hurt, and you shouldn't. Um, she has. A line that blew me out of the fucking water in the first issue where she's talking to Master Ren, who's the cat that is sort of just kind of, I don't remember if he's on a mission from the cat nation or if he's just kind of there, but he follows them around and he he says like some, some comment about, about Meika and how she how she uh, has consumed the lives of these. Were they part of the witch nun army? Yes. The people she killed. And he, he, I think he must call her a monster. And um, Kippa looks to him and she says, don't be like the witches, Mr. Wren. They call us monsters because it makes, it makes it easier to hurt us. And monsters are people too. I think that brings up a good, it's kind of a motif. It's kind of a theme in the comic which is, and it ties into the title, because monstrous, M-O-N-S-T-R-E-S-S, is a homonym of monstrous, M-O-N-S-T-R-O-U-S, a noun and an adjective, respectful, respectively. And what does it mean to be a monster? I think that's one of the big questions this book raises with me, that I still, I'm grappling with it to this very moment what does it mean to be a monster and who gets to decide what a monster is and how is that tied into personhood and all this other stuff because looking at it objectively she is kind of a monstrous yes like she has a demon inside her and who has to siphon people's energy in order to live but there's also like the witch nuns who take parts of children to get their like healing and life serums. There's the Dawn Court who uses necromancers to raise the spirits of dead children to get answers for their war machine. There's all, all these other people that are acting to what they think is an appropriate end. And it's one of those things where if you look at it, from any varying perspective, any of them can be the quote-unquote bad guy. 
And I think that's where narratively and, like, writing, like, Marjorie Liu earned every fucking bit of her Eisner Award, praise be, but narratively the complexity of that sort of ethical and emotional engagement really spoke to me as I read it. Yeah, it's not a straightforward conflict by any means. I think a lot of the moral badness really lies more heavily on the Kumea just because they're real, they're real shady uh, both literally and figuratively. Uh, but at the same time, you have these actors that you want to be sympathetic toward, and they're not, they're not sympathetic. Killing, killing dead children, or killing dead children, killing children so that you can basically raise them from the dead and then have control over them to be able to ask them questions is highly suspect and who even knows what the dust court is doing over there and everyone is sort of operating in this moral gray area even Meka's best friend Tuya she keeps popping in at the end of the volumes to like kick the reader in the face because you're like this is Meka's best friend and it's like no Tuya's been trying to like stop Meka and kill Meka because of the power that she has is dangerous it could be world ending you would never expect that and she keeps showing up to like try and try and do this so in a weird way i think tuya would be the traditional heroine that we've all we would all expecting she's trying to fight the great evil power and save the world you know take the evil artifact which is this mask the mask of the shaman empress So the shaman empress was the one who originally brought this demon god into the world from wherever he was before. And she did it using some combination of science and magic, and she made this mask. And it's probably the most important mask in the series, but it's not the only mask. The Kumea wear masks a lot. The mask is broken into pieces, and you see, I think we know for sure that there are two pieces that the reader, by the end of volume two, knows where the locations are. And so Tuya is is trying to stop this process from happening by defeating the great evil. But we're not, we're not, we're like, Tuya, what are you doing? Like, stop it. You know, and I think we would be following her in in the more traditional sense. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's interesting to look at the ways this comic is very non-traditional. The the world exists completely under the control of matriarchy rather than patriarchy, which is just it was so weird. I'm like like I can count the number of male characters on one hand that have like legitimate speaking roles and I'm like, "What?" that's not what i'm used to there's a lot of um lesbian women there's a lot of women in relationships there's pirate queens which i'm all about it's it's very female heavy which is already not typical for comics is in the traditional sense we're getting a lot better now that i think there's a lot more female writers in comics it was kind of a boys game there for a bit which brings me to a point that i wanted to talk about i don't really know how much we're going to talk about it, but I thought it was worth bringing up. The The whole idea of 
not being able to engage with a story because you can't directly relate to the protagonist, which I don't really agree with. And and some of that is I'm I'm coming at it as a person who and this is probably gonna sound petty as shit, but we're here. I come at that as a person who in the past probably five years has gotten like really into playing video games. And a lot of video games, though the create though the character creation generators have become much more robust, I, I can't really create a person who looks exactly like me. And beyond that, there's very few like regular video games like not mmos not fighting games just single player like story driven games there's very few games like that that are about a person i would consider like me and that's fine because there's more than people like me in the world but i i can kind of see the two sides of it and we talked about this briefly in our production meeting about how if you're from a group that is used to seeing yourself represented, a lack of priority in that regard or a lack of representation can seem like discrimination. And really, it's more of just a lack of priority, which is what everyone else experiences all the time. Well, everyone else, you know what I mean. Like, it's, 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 I guess maybe I come at it differently because I do not belong to some portions of that group where all the stories are all about us. Like, obviously, a lot of YA for a while was about, like, white girls and in weird heterosexual romances that were probably not that good for them and, like, all this other <laughs> stuff. And and we've gotten... It, it's, the whole, it's the whole story. We've gotten a lot better. But it's because of storytellers like Marjorie Liu who were like... Who was like, no, I am setting this in an alternate steampunk art deco version of asia and it's gonna be a matriarchy and it's gonna be fantastic and then it was (laughs) so i i guess to me because i engaged so much with stories in various mediums whether it was film books comics games whatever that the protagonist very often did not look or act at all like me and I was still able to engage with and empathize with those characters. I didn't find the differences between me and Micah to be a problem in that regard. And I wonder if that is not a universal experience. Yeah, I don't know. Because I read this, I think I'm referring to it as my angry girl period. Where I just wanted to read stories and experience stories about women who were mad and not pretty and I mean make us pretty but like I mean like spiritually not pretty as and just like not necessarily violent but violence was probably a plus I don't know like women that aren't afraid to be violent I guess the way that men aren't afraid to be violent when they're in stories and Mega is all those things, and I don't know, maybe it was my visceral response to the election. <laughs> I mean, fair. Uh, but I just, I don't know. I mean, I'm not that angry or violent or cow. I mean, I hope I'm not. I mean, I know I'm not that violent, but I, I am not that callous or unfeeling or, cr- or cruel, but I needed to see that in a character to, like, I don't know. 
to know that it was in the world, I guess. Like, that that vibe was out there. And I think it's becoming more common. It's like, it's like allowing characters to have some, some range is good. Especially female characters. And I know this is, it's this one in Eisner for best series for teen, which I, like, give a strong side eye to, that this is appropriate for teenagers. 13 to 17. I mean, 17-year-olds are probably okay, but I'm giving a hard side eye to, like, letting anyone under 15 read this. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I just... I needed something different than than me to know. Like, I can't be... I think something I struggle with as a woman, maybe especially, but definitely at least as a human person, is this desire to be multiple things at once, and you literally can't be everything at the same time. Like, there's a really good analogy that if you talk to any woman in her 20s about I feel like she'll be like she'll nod her head yes like this idea of the fig tree from the bell jar and how you're sitting in a fig tree and you have to pick just one fig you cannot have all of the figs but in trying to choose which fig you want you take too long and they all fall off the tree and wither and you have no figs And, like, I didn't go down the path where I was, like, a super angry, you know, punch-em-up demon, you know, cool fighter girl. But, like, maybe I could have. I don't know. But I get to experience that through someone else. And, like, there are some figs that are just off limits. Like, I'm never gonna get the, like, magical demon fig, I guess. Yeah, I mean... Rest in peace. We're not. We're, not, we're never going to get that fig. But to, <laughs> just sometimes I feel like I need a magical demon to beat the shit out of people. Not like suck all their energy and kill them. Just like slap them around a little bit. No demon boyfriends for us. But <laughs> oh man, uh, that makes me sad. But anyway, I agree with that. I, I think it is important to see. Um, something beyond ourselves in our fiction. I think that that's healthy. I, I as much as as it is healthy to want to see representations of ourselves in fiction. Yeah, I mean the fact that like I'm looking at a comic and there's not just a ton of women, but there's this comic doesn't skimp on women or women of color and like ranges and different like. I don't know. I thought there was a pretty good range in the in terms of like people's facial features. Sometimes in comics, and I really struggle with this when I read like manga. Everyone looks the same. Same face syndrome. And I don't. I don't think we had that problem too much in this. I think maybe it gets confusing with anyone who's related to makeup because they all look so similar. But I think that that's highly intentional at the same time. Yeah, I I struggled sometimes, and I I do think it's intentional to show, like, the resemblance, uh, especially because they, Mika is, in essence, human passing, (laughs) even though she's an arcanic. Like, they even question that in the very, very beginning of the comic in volume one, when she's essentially getting auctioned off. And they're like, are you sure? Because she looks like a human. And they're like, oh, no, we would never sell one of us. What are you talking about? And that's when I knew what we'd be in for. But 
Meka and her mother, Mariko, both bear a very striking resemblance to the Shaman Empress because they are her direct descendants. Like, that's... I think that's an art and a narrative choice, but I, I think maybe... No, Moriko's not a descendant of the Shaman Empress. She went out and, like, found the last Shaman Oh, Empress see, they they only talk about her dad, like, twice, so I do not know. Yeah, no, I keep doing that, too. Like, I'm like, oh, they're all descended from the Shaman Empress because they all look like the Shaman Empress. Like, yeah. That's why I think it's confusing is because they do look like the Shaman Empress. Yeah, it might be because, like, I read it so quickly. But I felt like, do you remember that scene in, I don't, then this might be directed to you, my sweet listeners. Do any of you remember the scene in in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> where Charlie Day has that whole big board about Pepe Silvia in the mailroom and he looks kind of crazy and there's, like, string and documents everywhere. That's what I feel like I need to understand who everybody is, who they what, who they mean to each other, and what is going on in this timeline. And I'm sure if I had not read it as quickly as I did and I paid attention to everything, it would be fine. Yeah. But this is my second read, so I am cheating. Yes. I just read it. I just finished it for the first time. So I'm sure once I read it again, when I'm emotionally stable enough to do so. I will get a lot more out of it. But yeah, you just gotta let that first read kind of wash over you, because I did not pick a lot of the stuff up on the first read, because it's complicated. There's, like, the timeline isn't delivered to you linear- linearly. So the first time I read this, I didn't know what was going on, because the flashbacks are in these dream sequences, so they're not even, like, coherent flashbacks. Like, where you get, like, a capsule moment in most flashbacks, you you get, like, a little sequence, and it, like, says something, but these, sometimes they're just images, and they're, like, it's like you they have the movie on pause, and they're just looking at stuff, and it's very strange and very confusing, but I'm into it. One of the really interesting things for me in this comic are the motifs of sacredness versus desecration, uh, the ideas of purity and defilement, and and this idea of being cursed. So you kind of, it kind of operates on multiple levels because you have people talking about purity of the races and arcanics. They say the typical, like, ugly racist stuff about half-breeds and mongrels about the arcanics. And then you also have, like, this cursed mask that controls this infernal demonic energy and you have this Cumaean nun order who kind of worships this figure of Miriam who discovered Ilium and you have the cats who do their own thing and they worship a goddess called Eubasti Eubasti it's I'm very bad at this one of those (laughs) yeah and you have the sea goddess and, you know, Arcanics and Ancient One's burials are being desecrated by these witches. And I think it's just interesting because I think a lot of the time we consider the, the idea of purity and impurity to be 
something that is can be determined objectively, like whether or not something is sacred or holy, is determined by its own properties. And I think that this comic starts to push at that a little bit in terms of like what it what is that constructed of like we are making that up these ideas of purity essentially and that's especially true in terms of like the racism stuff and I think like does that carry over to these more metaphysical um discussions like because you see in a weird way you see this you start to see at any rate this kind of tenderness that Zen had for the shaman empress. And it's very weird coming from a multiple-eyed tentacle monster thing. Yeah, especially one that has shown quite a disdain for that kind of emotion. Yeah, he's like... He's cold-blooded. So, I don't know, I find all that very interesting. Because there's just so much bad juju in this book that they go through. They're at this island at the, um, that's where they spend most of the second volume. And it's just like the... You know anywhere that's called like the Island of Bones or whatever the fuck? Yeah, like it's, it's just going to be a bad the time. the corpse of the, of the brother-sister god that Zin like killed a long time ago that he betrayed. And that brings up some emotional stuff. But I just think it's so interesting how the ideas of, of purity and impurity are also kind of in a way tied to the physical body and also these ideas of betrayal and and trust and redi- I don't know, it's all mushed together in a really interesting way because the the corpse is the site of a betrayal and that's, I feel like, almost what makes it the island corpse that's what makes it so cursed it's it's well i mean because it's like the physical body but also this terrible thing happened there yeah i i agree with you there was something in the second volume that that just reminded me of that i actually did want to talk about when zin is zin is remembering and he sees the shaman empress like his memory of the shaman empress because often, we should probably talk about the memory sequences because they're interesting. It's like these, Zin and uh, Mako both have these, like, kind of repressed memories that they're trying to access. And it's like these versions of themselves or these versions of the people they knew speak to them in these dream sequences. And it's, it, I found that, like, how that expression of the subconscious was very interesting. Uh, he's, he's finally remembered that he was the one that killed the old god that the island is made out of and he says what have i done how could i forget how i betrayed my own who was i who am i perhaps it truly is time for me to die i deserve it and then the shaman empress this vision appears to him and says this again yes you murdered your friend because you tried to destroy all life on this world and your actions most certainly led to the imprisonment of your kind you are the very definition of treachery but guilt is such a bore, my Carito. You will never redeem yourself, but focus always on the shame, and your shame will eat you. It will become you. That is the coward's way. A coward never has to learn. 
Um, the past is never dead, but that is why it is so perilous and useful. I've been thinking a lot about time, guys. <laughs> um, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about time and, and how it is as much a perspective as a thing that we kind of move through, a dimension that we move through. And time as currency, which is something that was discussed in Jupiter Ascending, something that's discussed in Reaper Man, and just a lot of things. Uh, and this whole this whole notion about action and stuff that happened in the past never really having an end. And how, like, like the, the act of betraying the old god in kind of gave life and gave power to that place. And... That led me to think about the concept of ghosts as these echoes of actions and people and how the ghosts and echoes of the old gods still roam the world as if this act of horrible consumption and hunger and betrayal will in fact never be over. The echoes of it will never be silent. Even though it, it has now been passed down from the god level to the witch nuns and the arcanics and the dusk and the dawn court fighting each other and the cats wanting to think they're above it all, but really they're not. And the humans and then there's the people in between, like that lady who was just trying to help Meka and Kippa get where they needed to go, but she almost had her baby killed for it and like... This endless cycle of betrayal and trust and lack of it that fuels the narrative and how it almost seems like it all really started with that one act of betrayal. Yeah, because, I mean, we see, if you think about it, we see Tuya betray Meka, but Meka, I don't think Meka knows that this is happening. I don't think she knows where she is. No. And that's a really powerful thing. I think concepts and ideas just kind of echo through this comic on multiple levels. And there's something so cool about that. Like, I just like it to look at it. Like, I don't necessarily need to derive any extra meaning out of it. But it is also very, like, all of these things on all these different levels mean something and says something about I think just the structure of the world, you know, the in fiction and kind of this idea about how our own world operates. Because we talk about this a lot, about fiction as a lens for examining our own, you know, world in, in RL, real life. Mm-hmm. And this comic has a lot to say about war and individual choices in those wars and it has a lot to say about basically the refugee experience mm-hmm. and and what it means to be somebody who's kind of in between groups like Meka is and like a lot of people are in our own world. Mhm. I agree I agree with all of that. I I I do think This comic says so much that it's almost overwhelming to, like, think about, to think about the layers on which all of it works. (laughs) Like, it's, it it is almost like, I had to take, like, a week-long break from it to just process. 
and to just let my brain run through all the information because it's it's so much that just gets thrown at you but it is i mean it really is a work of art like i can't even i can't deal yeah i mean i think the art and the structure of the narrative and all the motifs and themes and ideas and it like they really create this echo chamber and you're just in the middle of it and you're having an experience while you're reading it yeah uh and that's probably why it won it did really good at the eisners this year Mm -hmm. uh it dethroned saga which didn't even get nominated bananas (laughs) oh my god but yeah it's it is i i love that we are now entering a phase that i hope is here to stay for a while of comics and and fiction in general where these kind of stories are allowed to be told because i think it's important it's i i think it's important that we have stories that uh, this is a motif on this show um even if we have even if they don't mean anything objectively that we have stories that say things that speak to us I don't think that'll ever not be important, especially in um, in sort of the political moment we're at right now, not just in the United States, but all over the world, um, where I think opening ourselves up to the complexity of villainy and monstrosity is a good first step to having real conversations about what is going on, both for the people in power and the people who are powerless. And I think it'll help make us more empathetic people. I know that's kind of a rose-tinted glasses view of it, but it's what I think. Okay, y'all, that was a wild ride. Thanks for listening. We love doing the show, and we love you. You're all precious. So next time, we're going to be doing feet of clay so that will bring us back to our remedial read-along so you can listen to us freak out about uh terry pratchett some more that's exciting uh and then what we would really really like we just like it so much as much as i like web comics if you followed us on twitter which you can do at remedial studies you can also check out our Tumblr, which is remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. You can even email us, which we might even check our email at some point. Anyway, that's remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. And I check it at least twice a month when we post the episodes on there for someone to do syndication. But we'd really like it if you left us a review on iTunes or wherever the heck you are listening to this podcast. Give us a rating. Tell your friends about us. I understand that this show is a real, for a real niche market. But I'm sure, you know, you know somebody that would like it. So tell them because that would be cool. And, you know, don't be afraid to, like, tweet at us or send us a message on Tumblr. We, like, live and die by that stuff. It's We love it. Yeah, we will die for you if you do that. Yeah. Inner circle immediately. You like one tweet that we tweeted that one time. 
Like, I still check in on people. I'm like, you doing okay, homie? Even though they, like, t- the last time they interacted with us was, like, two weeks ago. Or, like, I have I have people ago. on Twitter I do that with. Like, you good? You good? Okay, good. Yeah, but do you want to talk about our kind of indie spotlight for this week? Um, I do. I have two uh, things I want to talk about. One of them kind of leads into the other. So there's a new directory um, that I'm going to be keeping an eye on because I love storybook and literature podcasts and that is the hashtag lit happens podcast twitter it's um at lit l-i-t happens pods p-o-d-s and it's pretty much it looks like it's just going to be like like a curated account where you're going to be able to find new podcasts about books and literature we don't only talk about books here but that is kind of what we started with that is what we will eventually return to and it's something that I really like to listen to th- people talk about. Um, and in following that, I wanted to talk about one specific podcast that we are in a mutual follow with, and they are in the hashtag Lady Pod Squad, and it's really funny, and I wanted to tell you guys about it, called Loaded Literature at Loaded Lit Pod. It's these three ladies who get pretty well lit, and they talk about a book, and they just released an episode yesterday about The Handmaid's Tale, which I have not listened to because I'm not ready for the emotional trauma. But it is, it is a good time. They're a whole bunch of lit majors, so, like, everything they say is relatable because that was me. Um, but if you would like to give them a good old-fashioned follow, it's at Loaded Lit Pod on Twitter. You can tell them we sent you. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's going to matter one way or the other, but if you want to, that's, that's fine. And contrary to popular belief, Rachel and I are sober when we do this show. I know. It's it's amazing. <laughs> I can't imagine what this show would be like if we were even a little bit drunk. I get we can't do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think we can do that because it it would fall apart so horribly. Not only would the train derail but the caboose would detach in a hilarious fashion and, like, go backwards. And then, like, everyone would die in a horrific train crash. But anyway, are we done? I think we're done for the day. So I hope you guys have a lovely uh, two weeks until we hear from you again. Do your homework. Read or listen to Feet of Clay by Terry Pratchett. It is the third um, Ankh-Morpork Park Nightwatch book and it's great and um i haven't started it but i know it's great because i believe hannah you think you're messed up about personhood now Mm, i'm not sweet (laughs) (laughs) it just this is what happens when you read Discworld. it just piles on every book piles on top of each other on the level of fucked up that you are but i wouldn't have it another way so that's your homework read feet of clay by terry pratchett that's what we're going to be talking about next time Um, I have a mountain to climb ahead of me editing this, but hopefully the product that you're hearing as you're listening to my voice right now is good. We hope it is. We try to to make it so. So until next time, you will not see us. We will not see you, but you will hear us next time. Bye, robots. Bye, robots.